podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. This week with special guest, Neil Manthorpe. That's all I had really for the intro. Uh, Manners, we have a bunch of questions that have already been pre-sent to us, of which I would expect you to be the expert on pretty much every single one of them. (laughs) I'll do my best. All right. First one is from Christopher, who says, has anything in the last four England tests changed your long-term beliefs of test cricket and how it should be played? (laughs) Yes, it has. Um, I don't know how sustainable it will be, and I don't know how England will react, uh, for example, if there's a place in the World Test Championship final um, or in an Ashes series. Um, I think, uh, to a certain degree, the new dispensation had a free hit at their new way of playing test cricket because um, England are bottom of the World Test Championship. Um, the, the the series against New Zealand, to some degree, um, was as pressure-free as you would hope to get in a test series. Um, so I think there are some some big tests to come. And uh, but but yes, fundamentally, my, my understanding of Test cricket over the last thirty-five years has been fundamentally challenged, and I am now looking at it in a very different way. Yeah, I think I think all of us have to have caveats. It was it's interesting seeing Steve Smith basically come out and say um, what everyone has been saying to us privately. All the all the former pros have been saying the same thing. Oh, wait till they get on a green top. Wait till they get to Chennai. Wait till they get to Guyana. Although, you know, probably no one wants to go to Ghana and play a test match ever again. But, you know, all those sorts of normal things that, that test players say, well, you know, you know, can you do it on a, on a rainy night in, um, in Bramford Lane or whatever that football saying is that I've completely modeled up there. But, but that kind of thing, um, I think that's still understandable. But I think in certain situations, and I did a podcast about this uh, about a year ago, where it was the first time that white ball, the ODI batting average had gone above test batting averages. And the question that had to be asked at that point is, are we, better, are, are we batting better in white ball cricket than we are in red ball, even with the, even, well, you know, understanding the balls? And I think that's a fair question based on what we've seen over the last four tests, right? Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, the, the pitches have been pretty flat, haven't they, um, I, I, for the last four test matches? Um, you know, I, I mean, Edgebaston was really weird. It seemed to get better and better the bounce became more and more even and more and more predictable and that certainly allowed for the for the batting approach that um Bairstow in particular employed um you know i i think it's it's pretty exciting watching middle order um batters hitting the ball uh in the air over cover and being unafraid to to go over the top um so you know that's that's great and look um McCullum did say that uh, the new approach would see the team fall flat on its face um, every now and then, and he said that th- that's fine. I presume that means being bowled out for 80 kind of thing, um, which could have happened, of, of course. They were 55 for six. Um, and he said as long as England win more games than they lose, then that uh, all-or-nothing, high-risk, high-reward approach would be justified. But um, I remember um, for a while in the in the early 1990s, and sorry to change the subject to, to football, um, I'd... I don't follow football particularly closely, but um, I do tend to use quite a lot of football analogies. But do you remember, you might not know actually, Jared, um, Kevin Keegan uh, became manager of Newcastle and he adopted the approach that as long as they scored more goals than the opposition, it didn't matter how many they conceded. And famously, they they did sort of win games 5-4 with a very leaky defence, but as long as they were were scoring more goals, he was happy. Um, And that proved unsustainable. and I, I, I mean, look, I have no idea. I'm like, I'm, like I said, my, all my perceptions of Test cricket have been challenged in recent times. I don't know whether it's sustainable. I don't know whether they'll be able to do it against three Indian spinners in Chennai. I strongly doubt it. Um, I very st- strongly doubt it. And will they be able to do it against South Africa in six weeks' time? 
Um, we'll we'll wait and see. All I can say for certainty is that I'm very excited about uh, about about seeing whether they can. Which is kind of one of the most important things about all of this, isn't it? They have certainly you know got everyone talking about the cricket a lot more than you know just saying isn't England rubbish again, which is what we were doing for a while. Uh, Johnny <laughs> asks, is England style of Test cricket actually easier for some smaller nations to play, as you can more easily develop the same players for both white and red ball? and then don't require such a big pool of players. I think that's an interesting question, Johnny, but I think the easiest way to do what England's doing is to actually have an absolute buttload of players who already smashed the white ball. So I was talking to someone, uh, a, a cricket writer, who, who, who knows a lot about the game, and he was saying, well, why doesn't everyone do this? And I was like, well, England's the only team who scores it more than a runner ball in ODI cricket. No one else has even got to that level yet, right? So... It's actually, for England, it makes a lot more sense in the same way that, you know, if you're, when the West Indies went all in on fast bowlers, New Zealand probably weren't going to be able to do the same thing back in the, you know, 1976. Jared, for me, we can talk about uh, pitches and balls and whether the white kookaburra does um, a lot less than the red dukes, which is normally the case. It didn't seem to have happened in recent times. But I think it's really interesting, isn't it, that uh, when details started to emerge of the change of atmosphere, it seems to me that um, what Brenda McCullum has done, and, and talk about the atmosphere of Test cricket, what he appears to have tried to do and ha has succeeded in doing in a very short space of time is demystifying um, Test cricket. You know, um, players used to um, feel like they were being led to the high altar of the game um, in um, in in uh, sort of suitably respectful silence, dressed in their blazers and ties and. Um, and that it was, and Test cricket, the whole atmosphere, the ultimate form of the game, the whole atmosphere created, um, was almost too reverential. Um, and so he's, um, by all accounts, been playing Bruce Springsteen and and power ballads in the in the dressing room throughout the Test match. And um, and there was another thing as well that uh, players now no longer are compelled to travel to the. Uh, test match on the team bus. They don't all travel together. The only requirement now is that you're there half an hour before the start of play, which all sounds very radical. Um, and I have to say that many of the players that I've spoken to quite enjoyed the the reverence with which test cricket was was treated. You know, they sort of felt like um, they were in the, in the cathedral um, of, of the game and they quite enjoyed the special atmosphere of chess cricket. So um, maybe it's all about the popularization of, uh, of the game. And like I said, I, I think it all comes down to the fear of failure. I mean, you know, England's, the expectations of England fans were at an all time low, weren't they, before the New Zealand series? They'd, mm -hmm. they'd won one out of 17 test matches. Um, they probably knew subconsciously, if not consciously, that there would they would be granted a honeymoon period anyway. If they'd failed, uh, they could have said they're still bedding in. Um, and as I said, the expectations were low. But um, like in the ne next ICC cycle, um, in the Future Tools program, um, if they get off to a winning start, and it looks like they're, they're seriously challenging for a place in the World Test Championship, and, and the next Ashes, you know, let's just see whether they're able to adopt this freewheeling, carefree approach and and not be subdued by the fear of failure that um, that that South Africa will be, for example, um, and in six weeks' time, South Africa are in second place. Um, it, it means everything to not just the players, but the future of South African cricket and the status of South African cricket. So they'll be tense. They'll they'll be edgy. Um, and um, that could really work in England's favour. Uh, so, I mean, it's going to be really, really interesting. I foresee a good deal of edginess, and um, I think there'll be some rancour in this uh, series against South Africa. Edgy and rancour. Nort says, Basball has arrived with your futurist hat on. What comes next? I think that the most obvious <laughs> thing, and I think, you know, me and Manners have already commentated some of this for SEN and SENZ, is... It seems like there's a real lack of one-day skills that have been used so far by the bowling team. Whereas if you've got teams who are willing to bat like they're in one-days or T20s, surely that would be the more sensible way to be bowling at them. Whereas at the moment, I don't think we've quite seen that. And and I know that there was a you know a senior uh, a person was asked about this um, outside the Indian team, but they were asked about this you know former player, and they were like, no, normal red red, red ball bowling is what you should do. 
I'm not sure you're going to be able to get away with that if it's a flat pitch and Johnny Bairstow's flicking your best ball over backward square leg for six. So I do think that if you're looking noughts at the, the, the extreme um, future, I think test bowlers are going to have to do more sort of use more T20 and one day skills. If you're looking beyond that, I don't even know where this could go because it, it, I suppose it would be like asking someone in 1976 what, what you know, whether the West Indies theory is even going to work. Um, I, I mean, you'd have to go back and have a look at those articles. But my memory was people said you can't play without a spinner, um, and, you know, and it turned out you could. <laughs> that's that's a really interesting and and typically uh, Jared Kimber on the on the button um, point. Uh, so exactly, I mean, if the if the if the batters are going to be playing more like one day cricket, then um, I guess the bowlers will have to follow suit. Um, Bowlers always do, don't they? It's always about the batters who um, are are taking the initiative and, and changing things, and and the bowlers who have to come up with a solution to counter that. And that's that's really interesting. Um, but but again, um, the, the, there are many unknown factors. Um, one is we've had a really bad batch of Duke's balls this summer, mm. haven't we? Um, you know, they haven't really. Well, they they haven't maintained their shape literally. Um, doesn't seem to have been very much seam movement. Um, there's been precious little swing for most of the time, and um, perhaps baseball has just coincided with a bad batch of balls and some really flat pitches in England, which haven't deteriorated. Something to do with the drainage, um, and I, I strongly suspect. But again, you know, I wouldn't have the courage of my convictions to say this is definite. But I strongly suspect that baseball will be less successful, um, spectacularly less successful in some occasions, in, in other parts of the world. Do you, I mean, do you, is that your sense as well? At the Yeah, I mean, I'd probably say less other parts in the world and just other places where there's any help in the pitch at the moment. Mm. Uh, I had a look at the averages. So the generally in the UK, in the first 30 overs, the batting average is 28. And then from overs 30 to 80, it's 30. So it's no different. Those balls swing the whole way and the bowlers are on top. Uh, in this summer, the, aver the average in the first 30 overs is 30 and the average in the next um, 50 overs is 58. That's bonkers. Yeah, it's almost gone from parity to, um, you know, twice as ha hard to get a wicket as it used to be. And that's not all England batting either. That's a lot of Mitchell and Blundell. You know, that's a that's a little bit of Rishabh Pant and Ravi Jadeja, and you know, it, it's every, almost every. It's Jamie Overton, isn't it? It's it's that Stuart Broad innings. So we've certainly seen a lot of a lot of the time where that has happened. That is a particular moment that I've never seen happen before because I think the balls are actually hard. I think the old Duke's balls, as they currently stand, are harder to get a wicket with than a Kookaburra is right? Because they don't really help spinners either. They just sort of become, you know, gelatinous <laughs> things in your hand, you know, so, you know, like the, the, those, those squeezy balls where it's actually, it's popped a little bit and it's not even staying firm enough that you could squeeze it and get it to come back a bit like that. Um, just remember everyone, if you want to um, ask any questions in the group, Manners is only here for a little bit longer. So if you have a specific Neil Manthorpe question, who doesn't? who doesn't have a specific question, then also Manners will be able to see how the app works so he can do these on his own in the future. Although, you know, he'll probably still call me up and ask for my help. Um, but if you, do, if, you do have a, <laughs> if you do have a request, um, uh, send one through. I'll get through another Patreon question. And this is a good one for you, Manners, because I'm not sure I know the answer to this. James asks, there seems to be many more former top-level players who are match referees rather than umpires. What skills does the match referee require and are they less specialized than umpires? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you know the answer to this. You need to be a good golfer to be a, a match referee. <laughs> Umpiring is hard work. Um, and there have been a few um, who've been fast-tracked through the system, uh, former players like Paul Rifle. Uh, but, but otherwise, um, you need to do years and years and years on the county circuit or the state circuit or the provincial circuit. Um, and it's, it's hard graft. I mean, to, to come through the, the ICC uh, program and to, to actually make it to the elite panel. Remember, there's only 12. Um, and, you know, there's, and it's lonely um, and it, it's, it's miserable. And there's only two of you um, on the first class circuit, maybe three. Uh, and you may not get on with them, so you, you're having room service, um, you know, for for months on end by yourself. It's it's really hard, and 
Um, and I'm I'm not suggesting that match referees. I know I was being a bit facetious about golf, but my goodness, they do all seem to travel with a with a golf bag um, around the world, and they do have uh, duties um, to do, uh, many of which are mundane and um, uh, unexciting. You know, like logging over rates and and um, how many minutes for for in treatment for an injury to a to a batter um so that's all sort of pretty unexciting but but put it put it this way if you're a former player and you want to stay involved in the game um i think you can probably uh learn all you need to learn uh to be a match referee and to be fast-tracked into that position um uh in about three weeks in dubai now you obviously have to get a little bit of um first class experience as well most first class games these days in the premier uh, test playing nations have match referees um so uh you know we we tend to think of of match referees issuing sanctions and and making rulings on um incidents of um misconduct uh, but they're few and far between. Uh, there are less and less of those now. Um, so pretty much uh, the match referee um, has, I, I would say, an easier ride than than umpires. Yeah, I think the best way of putting it is just that it's an easier job and essentially they just give them to former players with a little bit of training, whereas becoming an umpire, even if you're even if you're someone like Paul Rifle who's pushed through the system, still actually takes a long time, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah. it's you know, that you know, if you're if you're looking for a good life, the match referee is much better. Although both of them there's a lot of travel involved. Um, uh, you know, you really have to be a, the sort of person who likes living in a suitcase, I think, if you're gonna do those jobs. Uh Ian says, Oh, this is a good one for Manus. Ian says, if you were a South African skipper and you won the toss in the first test versus England, how much would the conditions influence your decision and how much would putting England in to have them avoid batting in the fourth innings be a temptation? <laughs> there, were, there, there, were some, there were some great lines coming out of Edgebaston, weren't they, when Ben Stokes won the toss and, uh, and a few of his teammates said, um, uh, oh, that's it, Ben's won the toss, we'll have a chase, thanks. <laughs> Which which is great. Uh, yeah, um, I think that would probably would come into South Africa's thinking, I would think, uh, particularly as well with um, South Africa's bowling attack, pace attack. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't mind. I don't know, I'm thinking about it. I'm just thinking out loud, really. Uh, yes, I, I I think they probably, they, that would be a consideration, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, yeah and Dean Alga is a, is a wily old um, former player county player of course he's got significant county experience he'll been following uh, this summer very very closely so if if he believes that england not chasing in the fourth innings would be in his interest that i think but he's an opening batsman he likes to have a bat first mm. yeah uh, actually <laughs> thank you for saying it's a good question for me now you answer it i i think I was a bit surprised that India looked a little, not shell-shocked, because they certainly come up with plans to Bairstow, but that they, I don't think they thought about it as much as I would have coming in with three tests having just happened. With New Zealand, we were quite, I was quite harsh on New Zealand in Trentbridge when they didn't really pivot, but at the same time, this had never really happened before, so it was a bit tough. Then it kind of happened to them again, I was like, well, at a certain point, you've got to try more. I thought I thought India didn't try that much. I don't know if I would be willing to tell a test captain that they shouldn't bat first because of scary England. But what I would say is we know what they want to do. Do we want to take that away from them? Because in the first innings of these games, England are not batting anywhere like this. They're averaging far less runs per wicket. They're scoring far slower. Um just see if that you know mucks up their rhythm a little bit as much as anything um but yeah i don't know as if I, i'm thinking i'm trying to think as an analyst matters whether i'd go in and go guys let's let's change our entire plans based on the fact that england have been smashing everyone i might i might say if the pitchers keep doing what they're doing then the best time to bat is on day day four and day five so should we not do that and almost take england out of the conversation um, even though we know it's only England who's been batting on day four and day five. Um, Aditya says, if you were constructing an all-time test 11, would Adam Gilchrist find a place in it as a keeper? Or would you prefer choosing someone with better keeping skills, considering that your top six would be more than capable? Well, I'd have so many all-rounders probably in, in my team um, that I'm not sure I specifically need Gilchrist's uh, batting. 
Um, that said, who's the wicketkeeper that you then go for? Is it like someone like, I don't know, you know, Prasanna J. Wardner or Bob Taylor? Like, is it how specialist do we go with that, you know, the best wicketkeeper of all time in, in, in that? Or do you go Kumar Sangakara or, um, or um, uh, um, you know, someone else? Well, um, that presupposes that uh, Adam Gilchrist wasn't a very good wicketkeeper. Um, and I think that's unfair. I mean, the fact that he averaged, finished with an average, test batting average of 47 um, is something of a distraction uh, you know but he he wasn't he wasn't moved into the test team as I recall um, in place of Ian Healy uh, because he was a, a brilliant bat, batsman I mean uh, he's he he was a pretty pretty good keeper wasn't he uh, and, and I'm talking you know more than just tidy I mean he he wasn't a stopper are you you're gonna, in- you're gonna disagree with me now aren't you <laughs> no you're right, but I think if, if you did if you did purely on wicket keeping skills, I think there were probably four or five Sheffield Shield keepers who had better wicket keeping skills than him at that time. That they four could have or five. In. Well, Dar- Darren Berry uh, was around. Uh, Wade Second was around. Um, Tim Nielsen maybe had, was a better wicket keeper. Phil Emery. In, do you know what I mean? It wasn't as if there, there was. It was probably at that point just where. That was almost the last period where you had a lot of specialist wicket keepers around outside of Asia, um, and, and Australia had quite a few of them. So, like, I mean, I I watched a lot of Gilchrist and I watched a lot of Darren Berry. It's a little bit like you know, it's a little bit like comparing Tim Hedman to Roger Federer. They both technically did the same thing, <laughs> but one was on another level. But you're right; he's not a stopper. We've you know, the thing about Gilchrist wicket keeping is it, it's not given as much credit. The, the wicket keepers that came after him were far worse than he was. Mind you, you just mentioned Kumar Sangakara. Um, like, if you, <laughs> like, really, I mean, if you, if you were picking your, what, what was the question? All time test 11. Yeah. Well, um, he was a, yeah, he's one of the greatest batters of all time. And, um, and he was pretty damn good behind the stumps as well. So I think he was a better keeper than Gilchrist, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, certainly, you know, and, well, until he gave up keeping, um, mm. but but yeah, um, I, I, you, I mean, especially if he was prepared to bat in the at five, maybe then then absolutely, uh, you know, then then you can fit in all those all rounders that you want to have in your team. But so w- to answer the question is, um, I would probably go for Kumar Sankara, but if somebody presented me with an all time Test eleven with Gilchrist in it, uh, I would be far from horrified. Yeah, I, I think that's probably pretty fair. Uh, remember that you can make any request to chat to us while we go through all this. Um, Sadeep uh, has a question where he's basically saying, it's a very long question, Sadeep, so I'll try and, I'll try and um, uh, bring it down. But he's saying that Australia very much attacked uh, during their era, so from 1999 through to, what, 2007 probably, uh, with the bat. Uh, and so baseball isn't particularly a new concept. That's true, but I think if you go back and have a look at the runs for overs, we're talking about uh, go- Australia going up from two and a half uh, and three and over to three and a half and four. In fact, I don't think there's a year where Australia scored it over four runs and over um, in, in Test match cricket in that period, unless I'm misremembering it. And then you're comparing it to the fact that there have been something like 20 or 25 innings all time with a strike with a runs per over over 4.8 and England have done about five of them um in, in the last month I mean the jump up is massive um and and then you're talking about you know um uh, you, you know can it basically so what's the difference well the real difference is that when Australia what Australia were doing and and manage correct me if you think I'm wrong here but what Australia did in that period was they used fitness, a little bit of boundary hitting, and then uh, and then one day running between the wickets to basically put on an extra half a run to an extra run and over. All right. So they took they took one day skills, whereas what McCullum's really doing, what Basball does, is taking T twenty skills and hitting skills and putting those involved. Do you know I've got this um, theory, and I don't have um, your skill or resources in, in order to be able to back it up. Um, with uh, statistics, but I've got this theory that, and it, it ties in with exactly what you're saying. I've got this theory that what was behind Australia scoring at, at, at four and over, which they did um, on occasion, but you know, when at the beginning of that great the era of that great Australian team, um, a scoring rate of three and over was really eyebrow raising, you know, and people got, what well, gee whiz, I mean, they, you know, they scored 
270 runs in the day. Um, and it was really um, headline news. Uh, and I, I got this theory that what they did was leave less balls. And I know that you'd be able to, or Crick Viz would be able to, to um, tell us whether that's true or not. But So my recollection is that, um, as you said, they took a lot more singles. They played at a lot more balls. Um, whereas before that, um, you know, a, a top order batter's primary concern was to leave as many as possible. That's my recollection. They they would just leave it and leave it and leave it, um, you know, until they finally got one on the pads and they could, it was a scoring opportunity. Whereas Australia um, left less balls and, and took, took and ran more because they were fitter and stronger, as you said. Um, and, and yeah, now it's, it's different level. Um, so it's, um, apart from on the fourth afternoon when, um, when uh, Joe Root and Johnny Bairstow were going so well, they were hitting less boundaries then, but again, they were, they were running all the time. They were yeah. playing at deliveries and they were taking singles and they were running a ball down the third man, you know, the ultimate, um, ODI, uh, tick, keep scoreboard ticking over approach. Um, so, so yeah, can you, um, quickly do some research and, and tell me the percentage of balls that were left in the eighties as, as opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to the two thousands. Sadly not, but I think that's fair. I think, I think that's very fair. I think in one day cricket, you know, if you have that sort of mindset to be a bit more active, you're probably going to leave less balls, aren't you? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, th that's the point. The point is what, what's your primary goal when you go out to bat? Is it not to get out or is it to score runs? And that was yeah. the mindset that changed. Also, the really in interesting thing from an Australian point of view, if you look at the players who had a higher strike rate afterwards, they were the first generation to do one-day cricket seriously. So I remember interviewing Ricky Ponting once, and I was like, why did you take one-day cricket seriously? And he was like, well, I grew up and it was on the TV. We didn't know that players didn't take it seriously until, you know, we got picked for <laughs> Tasmania or Australia. And suddenly, you know, and that's, you know, that whole story about that Australian A-side, you know, being as good as the Australian side, that's because the Australian A-side were actually thinking about one-day cricket and playing one-day cricket really well. And the other side was just sort of rocking up and playing games. And I think that sort of, uh, that, that probably happened first with Australia, but I think that happened really everywhere. And so that slow rise of the run rate that we had until, was it 2009, 2010, probably just comes from all those skills that all those people had learned. And if that's the case, well, then we're about to go through a similar generation with all the kids who grew up watching T20 and thinking that's a serious competition, right? So it, it does make a lot more sense. I got, uh, this is a rip of few manners. Wait, let me just check if anyone in the group has put their hand up yet. No, you're, you're safe. Lucky. <laughs> Uh, James says, when compiling an all-time 11 for a country, do you think players uh, should be eligible to play for other countries prior to their homeland becoming an independent nation? So he's talking about Ranji. He's talking about Rhodesian-born Colin Bland should be available for an all-time Zimbabwean 11. I've never thought about this before. I think generally you would look at what they did for the country they were supposed to play for. Or sorry, the, the country that they did play for, um, if you're judging if they're an all-time player. But, I, you know, if you're doing the all-time best Scottish 11, you're probably going to have Ian Peebles in it, aren't you? That's a random reference, sorry. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, there are precious few players that have played for two test-playing nations, and I don't think that... Kepler Vessels would be uh, vying for a place in the all-time Australian uh, 11, but um, he might. Um, he might um, be a contender. He, he, he'd feature in the discussions anyway for a, a South African, um, certainly uh, modern era, all-time 11. Um, it's, it's, it's very um, interesting. I, I, I'm not sure about uh, what, what I think about that. Um, how about Michael Rippon? I want to, I wanted to ask you this because you, you'd know this. Has, has anybody else played for three nations at international level? That's a very good question. Uh, we've got a lot of dual, don't we? I can't think of anyone else. There might be like someone random who played for India and then Pakistan and then went on to like immigrate to somewhere in Europe or something and play an international, you know. Played for Romania. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? I mean, I suppose that's possible, but it wouldn't be an internet. It wouldn't. That it wouldn't have been an uh, an ODI or a test match or anything. No. So Michael Rippon, he didn't did actually he play for South Africa. No, he didn't. Did he? he no. But he still could. Well, <laughs> I suppose. I suppose so. But I mean, he you know was born and grew and grew up um, playing and learned his learned the game in South Africa, um, and then uh, courtesy of a Dutch 
grandfather played for the Netherlands and now, of course, he's about to play for New Zealand. So I, I kind of think of him as being a three-country cricketer, even though he hasn't actually played for South Africa. He's played professional cricket in four countries outside of the sort of T20 franchise system, which is, that's got to be close to a record. Maybe Graham Hick managed to do that. I don't know. I can't think of too many players who've ever played professional you know, first-class cricket or, you know, top-level cricket in, in four different countries the way that Michael Rippon has. It's it's a ridiculous system. Also, I don't – he's really good. I reckon I sent a tweet about nine years ago going, why are these counties not signing this guy up? He's a left-arm wrist spinner um, who could spin it both ways. It feels like it's the slowest – he must be about 30 now. I, I reckon I first saw him when he, he looked like he was a fetus. It's It's been such a slow rise for someone who was so obviously talented. There's only about nine left-arm wrist spinners in the world, man. You'd think they'd be able to fast-track one of them. I think he's into his 30s. I think he's 31 or he may be even 32 now. He's almost dead. Uh, Will says, uh, this is a question for me. Will says, you're not doing polite inquiries anymore. Will you ever be on Ask George? Well, George came on one of my videos. Sadly, I asked my producer, Muku, to edit George out, but he didn't do it. I'll be on Ask George if, if he ever, um, if George ever asked me to be on Ask George. Um, and then Will also says, can you explain Stuart Broad's batting? Do you know, I've got a big video coming out about Stuart Broad um, uh, very soon. The interesting thing for me is that there was a time where England thought he was good enough to bat at number seven in a test match, and he did it. He did it for three straight test matches, and the third test match he was in before lunch um, at, uh, because Stuart Clark absolutely tore through, um, I think it was at Headingley, absolutely tore through England, and then they never did it again. And almost outside of that one innings against Pakistan, which probably has to have a fairly large asterisk next to it these days, um, He's basically, he was on a slump well before Varun Aaron hit him in the face. Um, but it does feel like he's worked out a very good method of getting between 15 and 35 runs in the most entertaining way possible. Um, and he's like a high-functioning number 11. Is that fair, Manners? I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by um, your view on the batting abilities of guys like uh, Broad and, and Tim Southey's the other one. I knew you'd bring up Southey, your guy. Where, where, <laughs> where, Whenever anybody mentions um, the potential all-round abilities of, of those two, you, you're especially disparaging. So I'd like to know, is there anybody um, uh, who is widely condemned as a, as, a, as a batter who you think is actually better than, than they are? I mean, people say, I mean, Tim Southey's the same though, isn't he? I mean, how many times does he make a quick 30 at... Uh, at, at number nine these days, um, better than a runner ball, and they're often quite useful runs. So yeah. why why are you why are you so disparaging about them? And who do you think's underrated as a as a batter? I'm not disparaging about them. I'm you are. Ve I'm ve no. I'm very upset with people referring to them as all rounders when they are not all rounders. <laughs> and all rounder is a specific. There's a reason we have that phrase in cricket, and there's a big difference between someone who can occasionally get you a thirty and Ravi Jadeja, right? <laughs> and if we're putting those in the same basket, what are we even talking about? No, I think I think Tim Zaldi and Stuart Broad have potential to be... I'd almost, and, and you could put Shardul Takura in this as well, who was also called an all-rounder, and I was also very disparaging about that, and Mitchell Stark, although, weirdly enough, Mitchell Stark might be the one who's becoming an all-rounder, uh, but you could throw Mitchell Johnson back in from the old days as well. I think a lot of those guys have the ability to have to almost bat like a number 11, but at number eight or number nine and be disruptors, right? And, and it's almost baseball like uh, a, a like way of thinking about it. Remember, like, there was a lot, a lot of times where teams would put the more sensitive, you know, you'd put your Pat Cummins or your Paul Harris, right, up at eight or nine. And I was like, shouldn't you be putting the guy up who's going to just slice a bunch of balls over and completely upset the other one while you've got a batter at the other end? Um, and, and it seems to be, it seems to have gone out of fashion to have that sort of attacking number eight or nine who, who just could slog a quick 30, which can put you off a little bit. We saw what Boomer did, you know, against, uh, you know, England in that last set. He only middled like one and a half balls in that over, but still managed to, you know, just because of the way he attacked. So I do think there is value in that. What I don't think there is value in is pretending that these players are all rounders. Um, because the long list of people I've been told who can be around as a test level include people like Mornay Morkel. Um, oh. and it's just not true. Do you remember that? They remember the whole, oh, Mornay Morkel, he's got a good back foot drive. He's going to be an all-rounder. Him and Stuart Broad were thought to be all-rounders at a similar era. And it's like, what, what are you, what are we even talking about here? We're, we're literally, he's got one shot. 
Mitchell Johnson made 100 against South Africa when Australia had already lost the game and everyone lost their minds thinking he was going to be the next great all-rounder. No, some people can hit. And that's a great skill to have. And as I said, there's a, there's a real, I, I think those sorts of players have kind of been undervalued maybe since the 70s where we, we keep pushing up the guys who are really sensible, the Matthew Hoggard type guys, we push them up the order and the Jason Gillespie's and it's like, well, actually, you know, the, the Craig McDermott and Pat Simcox's are probably, you know, far more troubling if, or, you know, when you're, when you're bowling to that kind of team. That's all I'm saying, Manners. Do you remember when Mornay Morkel opened the batting in a test match? I don't remember when it was, but it must have been early in his career, wasn't it? It was the um, Graham Smith broken hand test match at the SCG in the second innings. Oh, yes. Uh, and so the discussion was, uh, right, um, do we all move up one place in the order? And I think Hashim Amra was batting three at that stage and uh, and Shark Callis was four, and they all said no. At which point, Mornay Mortal said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And uh, it was a massive shock to all of us. We're sitting in the commentary box, and I remember Jim Maxwell or somebody nudging me and saying, who's that walking out with Neil McKenzie? And I said, um, I don't know. And I, I looked <laughs> and I looked, and I kept thinking, one side of my brain was saying, it's Mornay Morkel. And the other side was saying, it can't be. It cannot be Mornay Morkel. Anyway, he was caught mid-off second ball. <laughs> I'm going to pose this to you. You can come up with an answer by the end of the podcast if you'd like. Danny Morrison also opened in a test match of in really? modern Kish. Yeah, in modern cricket, which one? It, I, I would say Morrison was a worse bat than Mornay Morkel, but you can think about that if you don't want to. If you don't want to stick your your thing to it, but my no, memory no, no, was I, I'd have to go with that. I mean, Mornay Morkel made fifties. Did did Danny yeah. Morrison make fifties? I mean, I I don't know. But what my my memory of Danny Morrison was how quickly he broke the world record for the most ducks, like. It seemed to be an extraordinarily fast rise to be that bad that quickly. And he ended up with a fairly decent number 11 record, which, you know, decent number 11 record doesn't mean anything. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> he, he wasn't Chris Martin or Glenn McGrath, um, and yet he, he got a lot of ducks. Um, we've got Ekanth coming through, so hopefully you'll be able to hear him, Manners. Ekanth, what's your question? Uh, hi, man. I hope uh, you can hear me. I can hear you. That's Yeah, perfect. So I had to know about player interviews. So in general, in publications at least, press conferences, particularly pre-match, post-match stuff is used uh, for quote speeches. And in the odd times, conversations are used for features and stuff like that. But over time, it, uh, you know, it's bland only. And it's uh, not particularly substantial in any way. But I want to know what you feel uh, is necessary and what uh, what, in, what kind of interviews you like when you were working for a publication and what it is now. Oh, I, I mean, I've got so many thoughts on this, but I'll let the expert answer you first. Manners? I've also got so many thoughts on this. <laughs> we, we're going to have to do a whole different program, uh, a whole different show just on this subject. But so a couple of years ago, how, how Jared, you'll be able to give me a sort of time frame on this, but my sense is that maybe 15 years ago, there was uh, a move by cricket boards around the country to bleach all the personality and character out of their players. <laughs> and they actually, uh, they actually sort of went on training courses with the, the PR and communications departments on their various boards uh, when they were actually taught how to say nothing um, mm. and, and to not answer questions. Um, and you know, there was this fear that, oh, they might say the wrong thing and it would be a public relations disaster and the public relations disaster duly happened, um, because, uh, the players were so featureless that, um, even respectable journalists like me and Jared, uh, had to go off, you know, looking for, um, for, for stories and, and, uh, and uh, not that we, we ever tabloided ourselves, but, you know, you, you, the players would just say the same thing over and over and over again. And I'd just like to say, um, and I've done various training courses, as you have, Jared, with um, players and, and with agents. And I would just like to say that players who say uh, something and have an interesting tale to tell and tell the truth um, and, um, and uh, are impervious to the bleach that uh, is... Um, that they are required to... <laughs> the bleach bath that they're required to take when they become an international player... Their careers, I believe, um, generally speaking, um, go further and last longer. 
um, because subconsciously or, co or consciously, um, we as the media enjoy a personality and, and we enjoy somebody with, with character. Um, and somebody who is, is dull and featureless and, um, and gives and says nothing. And after all, they're not talking to us. They're talking to cricket lovers because we're just the medium. Uh, that passes on the message. And, and in my experience, uh, there tends to be less uh, sympathetic writing and commentating um, on, on players who might be going through a, a difficult period um, if they are, if, if they've done nothing to, to promote themselves or, or the game. So that's, <laughs> that's just one thought. Yeah. I think that, that era that you're talking about, it was very much, they were, the media managers would give them two or three key phrases. <laughs> and I remember a Brad Hatton, and Brad Hatton, you know, whether you like him or not, had a very strong personality. And I remember there was, I can't remember if it was an Ashes test. It might have been 10, 11 Ashes. We did a press conference with him. And he used the phrase, this game does turn something like 17 times. The only reason that it was entertaining is because he got more and more agitated every time he had to use it. And he just kept saying it over. And of course, the game didn't turn. Australia got absolutely belted the next day. But but I do remember that. And then talking to some of the media managers, I would say that in that era, and I'm not, you were a media manager, that is, uh, of, of occasions for Zimbabwe. But I'd say that era, the whole media manager was to almost hide the players away as much as possible. So it wasn't just that the boards were training them. Media managers were going out of their way to make sure that nothing was ever said. I think we've had a great crop of media managers in international cricket over the last few years. Also think, you know, uh, T20 franchises made it a lot easier for, for the press to get to people. What I would say, and I, I, ECB asked me, asked me for my opinion. They took me out to lunch and I told them what I thought and they still haven't done it, which is they should do mix zones, um, all the time. I mean, they should allow the players to tell their own stories in their own words and, uh, they should make make it so that at the end of each day, there are five or six really interesting stories coming out of a day of a day's cricket, or the day before a game, or the day after a game, um, and not just one story written over and over and over again. And the actual press conferences should be only coaches and captains. Anything else should be an environment where you get access to three or four different players. They're a little bit more relaxed. They know they can stand next to us. They're not they've not got the lights in their face. Um, I think that's a much better system. I think American sports have proved that. If cricketers don't want to open up the locker rooms, that's fine. Find another space to be able to do that in. Do it out on the ground if you have to at the end of the day's play. I think that would allow the players to tell their stories better. I think we'd get more personal reactions out of them. I think cricket writing and cricket broadcasting would be far better. Um, and I think it's better for the sport. But instead, at the moment, it is still very much uh, Rory Dullard from PA, first question. You know, uh, the Given the amount of innovation and change and forward thinking and progression that there has been in the game, is it not spectacular how little the press conference has changed? And the other thing is that players have told me, you know, for, for 30 years, um, there have been players who have told me uh, just how intimidating they find it and how uncomfortable mm. they find it. They sit behind a desk in front of a bunch of microphones um, with um, journalists, uh, you know, firing questions at them. And it becomes more comfortable, I suppose, if you're lucky enough to play for years and years and years and you recognise the faces um, and you eventually become comfortable in that environment. But they've been doing it like that since, well, ever. Uh, I mean, you, you're absolutely right, you know. Um, and COVID was the first time that began to change because mm. for the first time we would have a press conference where, um, the player was far closer to his comfort zone. He was still surrounded by by journalists, um, but he was on the outfield. You know, he was he was that's his office. And do you mm. remember we had you know lots of open air press conferences, and in fact, um, players became a lot more comfortable with Zoom press conferences. Um, but you know that that was not thanks to any <laughs> forward thinking cricket administrator. That was that was thanks to a pandemic that uh, we finally had different formula formulas. But um, Open Zone, I'm familiar with uh, in covering multi-sport events like Commonwealth Games and Olympics. Um, that was the first time I experienced it. There'd be a, a mixed zone, um, as, you, you, as you said. Um, and they seemed to work really, really well. And <laughs> just by the by, and this is uh, 
just a, a distraction, really. It also discourages lazy journalists, doesn't it? Because you actually yes. have to do some. You actually have to do some work as a journalist. You you know you you need to go find the person you yep. need to speak to, and you know make an effort. I was told that one of the reasons that the ECB didn't go towards it is because the some senior journalists weren't as happy because it would have meant slightly more work for them. Uh, so the ICC well, went to them. a surprise, Jared. Yeah. So the ICC went to them, when was it? When was it the, they did it for the, well, before COVID, 2019 World Cup, we had it. Uh, we had the mix zones. And it was brilliant. You know, the ability to go and talk to, I, I remember there was an innings where um, Nicholas Puran had made some runs. And you could talk to Jason Holder, Roddy Eswick, Nicholas Puran, and someone else about his development, right? You can't do that in a normal press conference. And you get, and, and also the players in a normal press conference are trying to get through it. Whereas in this case, if you've only got two questions for them, they can go. And then on the days where there's seven or eight questions, um, th th they'll stay a little bit later. The whole thing works better. Uh, if anyone else has any other questions, any speaker requests, put them through while Manners is still here. Uh, Ross English says, Oh, here we go. We're back on baseball. Uh, how much of this extraordinary English test summer has been down to the ball? Do you expect to see a return to normal batting patterns when the Dukes gets back to producing balls that can stay hard for a decent amount of time? Uh, I, I think that is, I mean, there is absolutely no doubt. I think, I think it was Henry Moran with us on SEN who first pointed out to me, if you go through this entire summer, you've got Mitchell and Blundell, uh, you've got Bairstow, Root, Stokes, Overton, um, and then you could throw in Siva and Marazan Cap. Literally, almost all the most runs this summer have been scored in England by someone in the middle order. That would suggest, and we know that in first class cricket, a similar pattern has happened. That would suggest to me, man, is that at, at the very least, what what was the best way? It's I think the way I described it in one of my columns was Basball has been slightly wind assisted at the moment. I think a lot. I think a, a lot. I mean, we've had some, I've never seen so many ball changes um, in, in my life in a test match. Um, you know, the, the various stats and various of the four test matches we've had now and the ball has been changed um, seven or eight times. I think the record was nine times before, you know, we got to the 90 over or the 80 over mark. So a, a lot. I mean, I said, we, we said that right at the beginning of the, of the show, didn't we? Um, I think that, you know, there are a number of, um, a number of reasons that Basball has uh, got off to this dynamic and successful start. Pitches and, and balls, uh, for sure. Um, you know, that's not to detract in any way from the skill and the brilliance of Johnny Bairstow and, uh, and Joe Root and everybody else who's, who's cashed in. And let's not forget, you know, Zach Crawley and Alex Lees made England's fastest ever opening partnership, uh, century opening partnership. So mm. a lot, my, my gut feel, um, I'm only hesitating because my gut feel has been wrong um, for the last four test matches. Um, but my, my gut feel is that um, McCullum was absolutely right when he said that this team would fall on its face um, from time to time, adopting this um, uber-positive approach. But but like I said, um, I'll, I'll make a confession. I haven't bought a ticket, bought a ticket um, to watch cricket for, for 25 years. <laughs> Um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to work and cover and commentate or write on the matches that I've wanted to see. But, um, but given the way England have played in the last four years, Jared, if you and I weren't going to be, um, at Lords on, uh, August the 17th for the first day of the test match, um, actually no Lords, I couldn't afford a ticket at Lords, um, <laughs> but, but. But but I would certainly I would certainly consider buying a ticket for um, I would I, I would actually um you know that so is that not sort of an ultimate vote of confidence if that's what Stokes and McCullum wanted if they wanted to put uh, there's no problem putting bums on seats in Test matches in England anyway but if they wanted to make the game more appealing and more attractive um, then after four Test matches you'd have to give them ten out of ten yeah I think there's still every chance that this will fail and that it won't work and that they'll have to go back to something else. And that a lot of what's happened at the moment is related to the teams they've played at the times they've played them and the pitches and the balls and all those sorts of things. And the good vibes, I mean, they haven't failed yet. So the good, <laughs> good vibes are still there. Um, but I think that it is one of the most exciting things to happen to test cricket in, in quite some time. 
And I, I'm struggling to think of anything else. And, and if you think about it, that's sort of what England did in, in one-day cricket. So I wrote a tweet, 2016, 2017, calling England the most interesting team in the world. And people absolutely hated that tweet, man, as, as they tend to do with tweets. And it was because we have been so used to England not being interesting as an, as an international team for so long and their accomplishments being overblown. You, you, can, make, you can make a very big argument for, that from World War II, uh, realistic, or well, well, from 1965 maybe, through to um, 20, the 2015 World Cup, England really had no major impact on world cricket other than the fact they were still England. Right, and you can't make that claim anymore. They completely change the way they play T Twenty and One Day cricket, and they'll probably change the way that everyone plays One Day cricket on the back of what they did. And now they're trying a method in Test cricket, which is it's a little bit like setting yourself on fire and, and running through a forest. But I don't know. Maybe they get to the other side and there's a lovely lake. I, I, I mean, it's worked so far, and and it's been spectacular. But there's absolutely no doubt that. It's entertaining. I mean, what did McCullum say? They wanted to bring sexy back to cricket and Besto and, uh, sorry, um, Stokes and Root said they wanted to be rock stars. You can't argue they're not doing that. They've absolutely nailed that part of it, whether they'll continue to win or not and whether other people will follow what they've done. There's a lot of talk about how, you know, West Indies did this and Australia did this and other people followed. No one really followed what the West Indies did because no one else could make it work, right? You need the right kind of players to be able to make it work. With Australia... Other teams slightly up their rate and they kept up in their rate. I'm not sure anyone was as attacking as Australia um, in, in one era until this. So it, it's all quite interesting. Uh, we just got a couple of, uh, um, if you do have any last questions, Manners has to get his hair cut, he's told me. So he has to go very <laughs> soon. Um, so put your hand up and we'll get to those. But William says, a wet Tuesday in Stoke. Oh, I was so close. I knew it was somewhere not in London, that wet Tuesday. Um, Siddharth says, is Jadeja reaching Imran Khan levels? I don't think so at the moment, but I mean, if it, the, the problem with Jadeja is every time I, I watch him on a first day pitch or on a pitch that doesn't suit him, he just looks so benign. But then you go back to his numbers and you, you're reminded how absolutely spectacular he's been. But I, I'm really loving his batting. Uh, Tom says, I still have a Victorian accent. I don't know what a Victorian accent actually means, but um, probably means I mispronounce Australia occasionally and you use the word Australia as in Australia with a Y, not Australia with an L. Um, and James says, I remember Finch straight up accepted that the toss played a big part in them winning the T20 World Cup. Yeah, I, I think that, that, uh, that, I thought that was so honest and, and it did play a big part. Uh, we've just got um, Keshev coming through. Keshev, what's your question? Yeah, so it's Dhoni's birthday today and it felt like Team India was giving a throwback to Dhoni's era in that test match we, when we used to get so frustrated on overseas tour with the bowling attack he had. So uh, the question is kind of related to that. So, you know, how we failed to defend 370-odd and before that in South Africa, we failed to defend twice uh, around 240-250. So is that enough sample size for India to be pressing the panic button and look for options other than Shardul and Siraj? Because Bumra is, you know, the only one who seems to be threatening and Shami, we know when he turns it on, he turns it on. But then again, he's also not as consistent. So should we be looking at other options or, you know, did we discard Ashan Sharma a little too soon? That's really interesting. Manas, you were at all three of their last tests, I assume, for India. Is that right? All those yeah, chases? certainly. Yeah. So was... my memory is that one of those chases was not easy for South Africa, but they were in control. And then obviously there was the sort of the more Dean Elgar inspired one. Uh, and, and the other one. But Shardul, after a brilliant start to his career, doesn't look like a consistent test bowler. Actually, he's bowling. I don't think he's the most skillful bowler in the world, but he's got. I think he's got a very smart brain. But he hasn't been able to consistently put the ball in the right area, which seems to be a big problem when they're doing chases. It did feel a little bit like Jadeja was bowling over the wicket. Um, Siraj wasn't bowling as consistently as he should. It felt a little bit when they were going up against England in that last innings that they had a two-man bowling attack. Is that something that you felt in South Africa? Just on the subject of Shardul uh, Thakur, I was very disappointed with him at Edgebaston. Having seen him be really, really effective with swing and wobble seam 
as well as you know movement. Um, I mean, he took seven wickets in the Test match at the Wanderers, and he was good for them. You know, I mean, it was a really, really skillful seven for. And uh, you may recall <laughs> at the um, beginning of England's run chase at Edgebaston, I said, "Oh, look out for Shardul Thakur." In fact, I was talking him up in the first innings um, because I, I haven't seen him, um, I guess, um, for for six months. But yeah, he he certainly wasn't the bowler. I kept saying uh, he was easy to underestimate, which is a polite way of saying he, he's not very quick and um, he doesn't do a great deal with the ball. But he he did just enough. Um, on that tour of South Africa. But, I mean, I, I really loathe to say this on the evidence of, of one test match, but he didn't look like a, a test cricketer at Edgebaston, did he? No. No, he didn't. I was disappointed with the way he batted and the way he bowled. He shouldn't be the problem here, though, because he should be the fifth bowler in this lineup. Right. So, realistically, Siraj and Jadeja are probably... I, I, I still don't understand why Jadeja didn't come around the wicket to Johnny Bairstow. He, he's got such a good record against him in one-day cricket. Um, and Siraj, I felt... I, I know he took wickets in the first innings, but I just felt that he wasn't able to maintain pressure. And that was a big problem when they got to the fourth innings, that inability to maintain pressure. Those other two chases were a lot smaller. But this one... England made it feel so small and there was n at no stage where I felt India kept any massive amount of pressure on unless Jadeja was bowling into the footmarks and, you know, a Boomer and Shami were bowling. I, th I think that's putting a lot of pressure on, on two or three bowlers. Um, and when you come in, it's a bit like watching New Zealand. New Zealand came in with five bowlers to all these games and by the end of the test match, it was like they had three of them. And that's kind of how I felt with India. Yeah, well, um, New Zealand picked a spinner and then didn't use him, did they? So um, that was already a five-man attack down to four, and then they had a couple of injuries. But um, there was a real lack of, of inspiration. And when they did try something uh, um, a little bit different, uh, they, they stuck with it um, through thick and thin. I mean, the two the two catching mid-wickets to Johnny Bairstow just went on and on and on. And it, it you know, uh, sure, I mean, we all applaud when captains try and find a bit of inspiration and do something a little bit different. But then they just weren't able to in, to apply the handbrake. Um, when Jadeja came on for the first time, his first three overs were pretty tidy, and he was bowling darts at, at, um, at middle and leg, wasn't he, just to apply the handbrake and to stop England from scoring. And it worked ever so briefly. Um, and maybe, again, you're questioning everything, don't you, Jared? I mean, now, the way um, these the, the four chess matches have gone. But... Um, I think there is still a place for for attempting anyway to to slow the the game down, and that and if you can do that effectively with um, batters who are trying to play this new high intensity, high velocity game, then it could be even more effective. Um, and, and and India just weren't able to do that, and I I don't know whether it's um, the lack of Test match overs in their legs and whether they got tired. Um, I think they probably I think they probably were pretty tired by the by the fourth afternoon but i know it's very unsexy and it's very unexciting to say that uh, the the ability to bowl maidens still has a place in test cricket but i think that's true um you know even even if it's just for for an hour or a session um that's obviously not going to be the england way uh, because i think you know baseball applies to to um going all out with the ball as well, doesn't it? Um, you know, like Ben Stokes bringing Jack Leach into the attack when he's, well, keeping him in the attack when he's being smashed. Um, but but I, 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 my, my sense is, and my knowledge of history is not as um, voluminous as yours, but it's 145 years of test cricket. There's always been a place um, to to go with the natural rhythms and ups and downs and flows and ebbs and flows of a uh, test match. Um, you can't play it at, at 90 miles an hour the whole time, I don't think. Uh, but that's because I've been conditioned by the last 30 years. <laughs> I, I think there will come a time where, you, you you know, that the value of bowling dot balls and maidens uh, will always um, have a place in the game. The old man thought. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you to everyone for listening. And I notice when Manners is here, just like there's no questions. You just want to hear him talk. And when it's me, you're interrupting me. Everyone is interrupting to ask as many questions as possible. So that's fair <laughs> enough. 
when we have the great man involved. Uh, but thank you to everyone who turned up on the Spotify Live. Obviously, if you've come in halfway through and you haven't listened to all this, it will be released as a podcast, as it always is, and you'll also be able to see our face and when we both accidentally picked our noses on YouTube. Thank you again. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on the 99.94 Network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do. And that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Makundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Or Jossie Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Uh-huh.